humans, hello humans, hello humans of the world. It's me, Ellie Krug, Ellie 2.0 Radio, talking to you. This will be our last show for the year. I'm, there'll be some best of Ellie's uh, in the next two weekends after this, simply because of the holidays. But well, I'm thrilled to be here talking with you, um, where we talk about the need to make the world a better place for all humans, particularly those who are considered other. And wow, for our last lot near live show of 2022 we have a special treat the big interview is with attorney and community leader john sullivan someone i have long long admired and want have wanted to be a guest you like me will love hearing a bit about john's story and all that he has accomplished and in the c block i'm going to talk about a training that i did this week which got a little bumpy for me and for others however let's begin with this week's uh, featured idealist, someone who I originally highlighted 150 episodes ago in January of 2020. But I'm coming back to him now again because he's got a, a new book out titled Surrender and because he was just featured in my favorite magazine in the world, The Atlantic. I'm speaking of Bono, the front man for the legendary rock group U2. I also realize that many of you may be surprised to hear that Bono is something other than a hard rocker, but it's true. He truly is an idealist, and lucky for the world, an idealist with some clout. I should note at this point that much of what I share is from the Atlantic article um, by David Brooks, a New York Times columnist. The article is titled, quote, Bono's Great Adventure, His Life Has Been an Attempt to Reconcile the Competing Demands of Radical Faith and Rock and Roll. What a title. Let's begin about Bono. First, I'll note that Bono's real name is Paul David Hewson, and the nickname Bono is short for Bonovox of O'Connell Street. Uh, that's a nickname conferred on him by a high school friend. Even more, it turns out that Bono can trace all of the important people in his life to high school. As Brooks writes, Bono's mother unexpectedly died of a stroke when Bono was 14 years old that put him into a tailspin of grief and suffering. But one day, he noticed a high school bulletin board notice that stated, quote, drummer seeks musicians to form band, unquote. The note was by Larry Mullen Jr. And from there, Bono recruited two other classmates, Adam Clayton and David Evans. Uh, David Evans took the nickname The Edge. And they began practicing in the school music room. Moreover, while in high school, high school, Bono met his future wife, Allie, with whom he's been together ever since. As David Brooks writes in the Atlantic article, quote, Bono have may, may have been a basket case at 14, but by 18, he had found the five people whom he would spend the rest of his life with, Jesus Christ, his wife, Allie, and his bandmates, Mullen, Adam, Clayton, and David Evans. And he met all of them at this school. Um, he joined his band and started dating his wife in the exact same week. For a teenager who seemed to be drowning, he did a fantastic job of finding companions for life. Who manages to do all of that by age 18? An incredible story, you know? And in some respects, it reminds me of my life because uh, I've been best friends with that. That started in seventh grade. I 
had married my high school sweetheart. We would have been together at this point by, I don't know, 40 years. I don't know, whatever, maybe 50, year, 50 years by the time it fell up compared. Anyway, and, and I just had a class reunion with four guys from high school. So reminds me of me. All right, enough about Ellie Krug. The other important thing to know about Bono is his religious convictions grounded in a form of Christianity called Shalom, S-H-A-L-O-M, which views Jesus as someone who put the poor at the forefront of helping. Okay? Not only did Bono adopt this faith, but so too did Mullen the drummer and The Edge. So three of the four members of U2 are very religious, very Jesus Christian-oriented. And so in Bono, we have someone incredibly famous and rich, but who is ground in both childhood relationships and a view that, like Jesus, he should work to help the world, help, help the life of the poorest of among us. And if you understand this about Bono, then you will understand and appreciate why it is that he's taken up so many causes, preventing the spread of HIV in Africa and debt relief for the developing world. Brooks writes that Bono is known for his persistence and, relis- and relentless pressure to the point of, ha- of, of haranguing uh, President Bush, too, at one time over getting HIV meds to Africa. It prompted Bush to say, quote, can I speak? I am the president, unquote. Brooks writes this, and it's a little bit of a long quote, but I think that you will appreciate it. He writes this. Bono has been ruthlessly single-minded. He will meet with anybody who can help those causes, no matter how noxious to him they might be on other subjects. The most famous example is his successful campaign to woo Jesse Helms, I would add parenthetically, a white supremacist, to support aid in Africa. In Surrender, that's the memoir, Bono relays a story told to him by Harry Belafonte that explains his methodology. When Bobby Kennedy was appointed attorney general, the civil rights community was deeply suspicious of him. Martin Luther King Jr. hosted a meeting where the other, le- where the other leaders trashed Kennedy as an Irish redneck who would set back civil rights. King slammed his hand on the table and asked, does anyone here have anything positive to say about our new attorney general? No, that's the point, the others said. There's nothing good about his record. King responded, I'm releasing you into the world to find one positive thing to say about Bobby Kennedy because that one positive thing will be the door through which our movement will have to pass. They found that RFK was close to his bishop, and through that door, they converted him into a great champion for civil rights. And I've got to tell you, when I started reading this article about Bono, there was no way that I would ever imagine reading also about my personal hero, Bobby Kennedy, as well as my other personal hero, Dr. King, showing up in Bono's books. Both of those men showing in Bono's book. And when you listen to U2's music, you will hear the idealism shine through. For example, Sunday Bloody Sunday is about the January 1972 incident in Deary, Ireland, where British troops fired on and killed unarmed civil rights protesters. And it's with that tune that I will end this segment. The next time you see or hear from Bono or from you two, know that he and they are Jesus-inspired idealists working to change the world. They are. 
And so listen to this song. Take a little bit of the lyrics in, and you'll know exactly what I mean. Ellie 2.0 Radio. So uh, check out next time you listen to you 2 and, uh, and uh, Bono. Uh, just remember what I said about him. Uh, he's an idealist to the nth degree. All right. Well, for the big interview, we have another idealist to the nth degree. And I am just absolutely ecstatic would be the right phrase I would have to have this guest. My guest for today is John Sullivan. He is currently the Executive Vice President and General Counsel and Corporate Secretary for Carlson, Inc. Uh, My Minnesota uh, listeners know that Carlson, Inc. is a very big company here in Minnesota. But John is, um, he's many other things, way, way beyond that. He, first of all, John has a law degree from the University of Notre Dame Law School and an undergraduate degree in quantitative methods, which, okay, um, from the College of St. Thomas and St. Paul. He is very active in our community. Uh, in the, just most recently, he served as the <clears throat> chair of the Board of Trustees for the Minneapolis Foundation, which does all kinds of great work here in the Twin Cities. And currently, he's on the Board of Directors for the Matthew Shepard Foundation. And he is co-chair for the Power to Build Capital campaign for the Family Tree Clinic, which treats, among other things, many, many transgender humans here in the Twin Cities. Uh, and um, <clears throat> something that we will get into, he was on the board of directors for Minnesotans United for All Families. And for my Minnesotan listeners here, my Minnesotan audience, you may recall, we are talking now 10 years ago when the anti-marriage amendment was up for um, election, uh, up, up for being voted on, um, which if codified would have been written into the Minnesota Constitution to define marriage as just the union of a man and a woman. And, and Minnesotans United for All Families had a campaign that was grassroots, 
that fought that and won. And not only that, <laughs> that was in November of 2012, and by May of 2013, John, we had marriage in Minnesota. <laughs> so, John Sullivan, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. I'm thrilled to have you here, my friend. Thank you so much, John. It's really quite a privilege to be here with you and just to share some stories. I'm looking forward to it. Well, John, you know, um, as as I uh, said to you uh, before we came on here, you are um, what I call a pillar person, and not many pillar people in the Twin Cities. And by pillar, I mean you are the quiet, behind the scenes, very strong, very smart, very engaging, very connected person who makes things happen and no one knows you did it. Do I have that about right about you? I, I'd say some of that. That's a, that's a. It's very kind of you to share all of those those descriptors. But um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been very involved. I've had some great opportunities here in the cities, and I, I don't necessarily need to be center stage to get the work done. So. No, well, you, and, and you know, you, I think you're 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 not even you're not all even at stage left, John. You're out out in the you're back mm-hmm. in you're back where they're building the building the set, hanging out with you know the set people and, 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 and I, and I admire that about you. So let's, let's just talk a little bit about, give, give us, a, give us a little sense about who you are. Okay. Did you grow up in Minnesota? How did you, you know, how did you decide to go to law school? Give us a little bit of the two one one. Okay. Well, I, I am a Minnesota born and raised. I've moved away twice, which I can get into come back both times as most good Minnesotans do. Um, times like this, as I'm looking out the window, it's absolutely gorgeous, but also kind of a sign of what's to come in terms of winter. Um, I spent a few years in Palo Alto, California for, for a job. And for those who know that area, it was, it's about 80 degrees and sunny pretty much every single day of the year. And so there are moments like this when I, when I wonder about my move back, but it, uh, it's all been for the good. My whole family's here and it's, uh, it's, it's why I came back to be able to be around people that, that care. So um, I can give you just a kind of a little bit of kind of the, it's, it's a meandering path when we talk about what I'm doing now and kind of, you know, what kind of got me there. Please do. Um, I like to be really clear to you. And even I, I talked to some students, it's not nearly as planful as it might sound that a lot of this happened because there were opportunities that came along and I just happened to be willing to, to give them a shot. And some of those opportunities have really made a huge difference in my life. And I, I'd like to give just a little bit of the background, kind of how I got into some of the community stuff, and it ties in some of my, my journey. And part of that is just you never know what kind of what we do today, how that might impact what's coming up down the road a few years from now. And that kind of ties into how I first got involved in the community. So you know, I went to school here, you know, you want to know that the Notre Dame is kind of kind of a capstone. I had four years or eight years of Catholic grade school, four years of a Catholic boys military high school at St. Thomas Academy. But then I went from there to Carleton, and I was a pre-med student at Carleton, and was there for two years. And then I had been very involved in theater, both in high school and my couple of years there. And I got the opportunity to come up to Children's Theater in Minneapolis and serve 
was actually an acting intern in the theater when they moved into the new facility. And that was supposed to be a one semester gig. So our little reference to the theater stuff here, um, I did spend time in the theater on stage. Um, I think there was at least some of the directors there made a recognition that I probably was better served on the administrative side, but that's a whole different <laughs> different story. Um, but that, that one semester turned into four years working with the theater, which provided some great experiences. And I will say was a significant challenge to my father, who his son going from taking pre-med classes to taking dance classes at Children's Theater was not quite the path that he had anticipated. Probably some other paths you took that he didn't anticipate either. <laughs> that comes later. <laughs> You're so right, and that comes later. Um, but when I left the, th the theater, I went back, got my undergraduate degree at St. Thomas, went on to law school, came back, and we can talk a little bit about that beginning of my career. But what was really important in that was I had just started, I was basically a ba you know kind of a baby lawyer at a big law firm, and children's theater went through a real crisis. It did. Um, the artistic founder and artistic director was arrested. Um, they disbanded the board and they were, you know, putting together a new board to try and save the theater. And they came back to me as somebody at that point, I had really not spent any time there since I had left, but because I knew the theater and now I was part of that sort of acceptable professional community, they invited me to come on the board I think primarily to be kind of a conduit between, you know, the theater people and this whole new board. And I will say that it was that experience with that board where these were some of the just most respected community leaders who came together saying, you know, we need to save this institution, that this institution is about more than just this one person who really you know, did some pretty horrible things. But looking back at what the theater could be, they really wanted to make the theater survive. And so I got to work with just some extraordinary community leaders and I got to learn from them what it meant to be, you know, a bigger part of the community to be able to give back. And I, I do think that that was something that, hey, I would never have been given that chance had I not taken this hiatus from, from school. And then being able to work with these just wonderful people who really inspired me then to, to get involved in other parts of the community. So what, that's kind of how I ended up in this place where doing things in community was just a big part of what I wanted to do. Well, and I need to remind just from a transparency standpoint, remind my audience that I'm on, currently on the board of Children's right. Theater Company, um, which is a wonderful organization. And I will tell you, John, it, has, it hasn't uh, backed away from it's it's past. I mean, it it talks. I looked at a document last week where they acknowledged harm that had been done to children and and said we're gonna we've got all these measures in place to prevent that from ever happening again. I, it's actually quite a model and um, for the, what they've how they've turned out to be and and thank you for your help with that. Now, what I'm hearing from you though, John, is that you you came across a bunch of other people well-established, people who had clout in the community. And then you you learned from that. And then you went, I mean, John, with the positions that you've had, you have been, you say you had a job out in Silicon Valley. Well, no, John, you, you were general counsel for a major Silicon, 
Silicon Valley company, Silicon Graphics, Inc., okay? You have also were general counsel for Cray Research. I mean, you've had, you've had huge jobs where you could have, John, you could have just sat back, just done that, written the check for an organization or two that you supported. But, John, you're not, you're not that person. You have dug in. You have done the work. You've shown up. You've got, I mean, can, can, let, can we just talk about the marriage, you know, the anti-marriage amendment. Tell us about what you did and tell us about how that movement may have even further cemented for you your idealism. Sure. I mean, that, that is clearly one of the elements of, you know, kind of my work that I am most proud of. And as you say, I mean, I've been involved in a lot of, of boards, both on professionally, so supporting for, you know, large public company for-profit boards. But I like for the marriage amendment, what I was able to do, because I've also served on a number of nonprofit boards, take and, and kind of meld those two together. Right. So when it was first, when the Republicans first put this amendment on the ballot, there was a small group of us that, that got together that said, you know, how do we structure ourselves to fight this? Um, at that time, the leader of Outfront Minnesota, the leader of Project 515, you know, had created an, an entity which was, was great because we were, you know, putting a stake in the ground, we've got this entity, but then there was the harder question of, you know, what does this entity need to be for us to be successful? And they came to me and there were some others in the community that said, because of my, my board work and my, you know, corporate governance, how do we put things together? Asked if I would be a part of that. And so early on, what we did was we, and I did a lot of homework on, right. you know, we weren't the first of these battles to be fought in the country. We were actually pretty far down the list, but none of them had been successful. None of them had won. I mean, and because, but we won because you did, your, you and your colleagues did something innovatively. And can you share what that was? Yeah. And, and part of that was we went back first and after um, California had lost its proposition, we, they did a really powerful, um, you know, sort of Postmortem on that. What what the, what lessons they had learned, which was hugely valuable to us as we were trying to say, okay, now we get to start with a clean sheet of paper. How can we not make some of those same mistakes? What can we do differently to really have a different outcome? And part of that was to create an organization that had everybody at the table. Uh, I think that was probably one of the biggest things we did, and what I really focused on. So even though I, I teach courses on corporate governance, my one of my rules is have having a small enough board that you can actually govern. Right. Um, children's <laughs> theater, you know, has got a huge board. Yeah. The governance comes from a smaller subset of that. And I've always focused more on the smaller piece. But we decided that we needed to have everyone at the table and everyone at the table had to have a voice and they had to have decision-making authority. So we created an organization with a little over 40 board members representing, I mean, it was just, it was unlike any coalition that has ever been built before in this, particularly in this state, you know, where we had four political parties represented. We had Republicans, Democrats, Independents, and the Green Party at that time. We had the LGBTQ organizations, both locally and nationally. So the big national organization had a seat at the table. The local organizations had a seat at the table. Religious organizations, we had multiple representations of communities of faith. Um, we had members of the corporate community. We had members of the union. So, I mean, having, having people at the table 
who can I can honestly say would not normally be at a table together. Right. And what we were really clear about was when we came in that room, we were only going to focus on one thing, and that was defeating the marriage amendment. So even though there was another you know, ballot initiative at the time on voter ID, organizations could work on that. But when you came into our room, we were going to be singularly focused. And I was a bit of a tyrant at, at board meetings where if people wanted to bring other things to the table, that basically was not going to be the conversation because that was going to divide right. parts of the of the coalition we had built. Um, and it wasn't just having those voices there, but giving them authority. I think one of the biggest changes, just as a great example of that, is how we use the communities of faith. So in California, they had sort of put them, they were like a little side project. You know, they would go out and do outreach to communities of faith. We chose to have communities of faith be a core of our door-to-door grassroots organizing. And I think one of the biggest things we did and one of the lessons you know I've shared is this how we then shared that message that we wanted people to be thinking about. Um, and it was, if you go back to that campaign, one of the really amazing things was we maintained a positive campaign throughout. Well, and, and, let, and let's make sure the audience understands what that positivity was. It was about love, right? It was, a, it was about love. And what we did was, you know, rather than going out and kind of saying, you know, we want you know, marriage and doing that kind of protest, it was all centered on what we called conversations. We wanted to have a million conversations with the people of Minnesota. And what we did was in all of the trainings that we did, we're focused on listening first. So we would ask questions. I mean, we, were, we would identify those people who were willing to have conversations yep. with us. They were not necessarily pro-marriage equality, but they weren't so far against us that they would have a conversation. So the first part of the conversation was always, you know, tell us about your marriage. Tell us about your life. Why is this important to you? And then we would listen to that. And then we would be able to reflect back to them why some of those really fundamental principles were also important to us. This interest that you have in having, you know, this relationship recognized and acknowledged by your family, by your friends, have it being supported in the community. All of these things that they would talk about, we would be able to say that's precisely why it's important to us. You know, we're not trying to impose some foreign thing right. on you. We're, we want to participate in this good thing that you have. Why, won't, you know, why, why are you concerned about us having that same joy and love that you have? It, it, so it was a really, really reframing of that. Well, and it's about commonalities, that we're all human. Yeah. We, all want to lo- we all want love. We all want to love and be loved. And, and why can't, I mean, all the LGBTQ people want is they just want to have what straight people had, you know? And it was a brilliant, John, it was a brilliant campaign. We, def- we were the first state to defeat this kind of a law, you know, uh, attempting to codify, you know, marriage between man and woman. And, and then, as I said, you know, I mean, we flipped it, you know, because the 2012 election gave Minnesota like a trifecta with all Dems in power. And then we had marriage equality, what, by June of, uh, of, the, of 2013. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. 
And I think one of the other interesting just observations on that whole campaign was you can talk to, we had so many people involved in that campaign. And if you ask different people like why they think we won, they'll all give you their perspective because they all saw it from a different angle. And I always like to say, and all of those perspectives are true. <laughs> we all experienced it in different ways. I think like my view was at the board, we were kind of the, the vehicle to allow all of these other voices to, you know, to be at the table together and to work together. You know, we created sort of the framework, but then there were just so many hundreds of others that were then out doing the work in all of the various yeah. communities across the state. Well, John, we've got only about three minutes left, but I wanted to get with one minute, your take on what's going on in America right now as it relates to, you know, as I intimated earlier, I mean, we, we have a sea of red enveloping our country. And then these oases of blue, you know, of places where everybody's accepted. Minnesota, thank God, is, is one such oasis. What, what do you see happening as we go down the road? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I try to look at things very positively. I mean, we've made some enormous progress. I mean, the, just last week, I mean, recognizing the respect for marriage across the country is huge. But what, that, what comes with that is that, that, that scares some people. Right. I don't know why. I mean, that's the piece we keep trying to say, what is it about my marriage that should scare you? Um, but I think what, what it does is that because we've made so much progress so quickly, people just because of their, I mean, their world is changing and the, that, that change scares them. Yep. And they really like things the way they used to be. Even though the way they things used to be, that may not be as idyllic as they remember them, but that, that, that there was a comfort in what was. And so there's a pushback now to try and, I think, to, to rein us in because we're moving forward so quickly. So those hundreds of pieces of really, there's no other word for them, but hateful legislation that's being proposed <laughs> across the country. You know, it is that pushback on, on the progress that we've made and basically saying, okay, you know, you've, you've gone this far, but don't you dare think about going any further. We actually would prefer to push you back a bit. Well, and that's what we're, we're, you know, so even though we've made progress, I mean, there, there's still just an extraordinary amount of work to be done. And the biggest difference is, I think, playing defense. I talked to the younger generation that's now coming up. We're playing a lot more defense again. And defense is not nearly as fulfilling or as exciting as playing offense in this space. It's very exciting when, you know, when we flip from playing defense and defeating a constitutional amendment playing offense and actually winning marriage equality for Minnesotans. Well, so John, one last question. Okay. Because I do have to watch our time. I mean, I could talk with okay. you. I could talk with you for two hours, my friend. Here's the question. Okay. And I have, I, I think a little sense, but what made you so idealistic? Because John, you are, if, if I ever had to have a poster child for an idealist, you'd be, you'd be in the poster. Well, thank you. That, that means a great deal, especially coming from you. I guess I've had people, you know, in my life that have, that have inspired me to just know that we can, I view idealism as, you know, believing we can actually do much better. Yep. Yep. And people who've inspired me ranging back to my early days with HRC with Elizabeth Birch. I mean, I could be a whole nother conversation, but probably currently I've, I've had the great privilege of spending over 20 years now working with Judy and Dennis Shepard. 
That's right. Yep. People who, you know, this, this, these parents who lost their son 25 years ago now oh. to this horrific crime. And the fact that even the trauma that they have suffered, that they believe that we, we can and must do better. And they've entrusted me to work alongside them again on their board. And I work, I've worked with them now for almost that entire time to see what they're willing to do and put themselves out there virtually every single day. You know, how can I, how can I see that and not believe that I, you know, I just, I just got to do more. You know, so it's, it's been the inspiration of people like that, that have really, really made a difference to me. You know, John, Matthew Shepard, his, his murder, I think changed America in many ways. And, and thank you for your service to be on their board and, and thank you for sharing about that. John, I am sorry that we have to go, but I just want you to know, I, I mean, thank you. Thank you for what all that you've done. And it's always been behind the scenes. And that is what I admire about you so very much. And so I just continue to be a pillar. I know I don't even need to say that to you because you're going to be a pillar until you take your last breath. But from one idealist to another, okay? Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Um, I, I greatly appreciate those words, particularly coming from, as you said, another pillar. I <laughs> truly, truly respect and appreciate all that you've done. And it's a great just to have this quick conversation. We've got a lot more we can chat about, I know. Okay, well, listen, I need to go. But uh, John, thanks for being on LE 2.0 radio and I'll be seeing you around. You know that, okay? Sounds good. Okay, listeners, we've been speaking with John Sullivan, who is a lawyer, but way, way more than that, a pillar of so many organizations and of all that is good in the world. I wish you the best, John. And listeners, when we come back, uh, we'll do my C block where I'll talk about an experience I had this week while I was doing a training, one of the last ones of the year. All right, we'll be back in a second. We're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio. I I could have, I, I literally could have talked to John Sullivan for two hours. He is, and, if, and he is like one of the most understated people you could ever like meet. And yet the things that he has done to make the world better, particularly here in the Twin Cities, particularly for humans who lack voices. Just the story that he just told about, you know, 12 years, a decade ago, trying to get, you know, marriage equality um, passed in Minnesota, certainly to defeat an effort to enshrine that there would be no marriage equality, um, about bringing all people to, to the table to talk. I mean, it is, it is the epitome of, of being a unifier and not a divider. And so, anyway, uh, John Sullivan, thank you again for all that you have done for humans. All right, we're in my C block here. 
So I'm here to talk about my work as an idealist. And I'll tell you, um, I am now, I'm on the other side, uh, uh, um, on the other side today of uh, all the work that I've done in 2022. Uh, I counted up, I did 113 talks, which to me is about 50 fewer than what I'd want to do. Um, but that's just the way it fell out uh, this year. Um, and my last talk yesterday uh, was to a group of high school students. And he asked me to come in to talk to their criminal justice class to talk about the differences between civil and criminal uh, legal systems. And uh, I, I think I gave them some food for thought. One of the things that I talked to them about is that uh, um, all of us uh, are criminals in one way or the other. We break the law in a variety of ways, but most of us do not get caught. Uh, the people with darker skin colors um, here in Minnesota are more likely to get caught um, than people with white color skin. Yep, It's just one of the realities. I talked to them about that. But what I want to talk to you about was the talk before that. So I've done two talks uh, this week. Uh, the last uh, talk before yesterday with the stu high school students uh, was gray area thinking to a governmental agency. We're not going to get into who that is other than that. And, um, you know, in my gray area thinking talk, which is about general human inclusivity, about trying to, you know, it's a tool set on how to be welcoming to anybody who is different or other compared to you or us. Um, it's really, a, it's a training on how to really be good to all humans, about how to make all humans feel that they matter. It, it is a training, and I'm not being braggadocious here, but it is a training that people just love. They absolutely love it. Um, but th this training this week to this governmental organization, about 100 people in the audience, I started the talk out like I or or ordinarily do. And within, I don't know, five minutes, somebody raised their hand and asked a question about, was I, was I othering white men? Um, and, and I've got to tell you, the question just absolutely threw me. And then I'm looking around the room, and I'm seeing a lot of people with crossed arms. You know, I mean, I, I have barely been speaking. Um, but I've seen a lot of people with crossed arms. And not, like, looking all that positive at Ellie Krug. And I'm like, Ellie, I'm like, and, and the audience had, you know, a number of men in it. Many of them were white, but it also had, you know, women. And it had people of other skin colors. And, but, boy, I, I was just thinking to myself... Uh, because the question just absolutely threw me. Later on, nobody could tell that I got thrown. Um, and then uh, and then it was, you know, it became clear during an exercise in the training that, that maybe, you know, uh, there's some uh, stuff going on internally within the organization. Somebody said something in the middle of the training when it was a time for everybody to engage. They said something. Um, which reflected on, on, you know, on atmosphere within the organization. And somebody on the other side of the room wanted to, to counter what that person was saying, which none of, neither of these had anything to do with the training. And then, you know, like one of the leaders in the organization had to step in and say, you know what, we're not, we're not going to be doing this. This is a, We're going to let Ellie do her training. And I just, I have just got to tell you, I mean, it was like, um, it was like, wow. 
Um, but uh, I got it done, and uh, and I walked away from there wondering, okay, you know, like, I mean, what first was what did I do wrong, and then wondering was was this of any value to anybody in the room? But I am really happy to report that I've got a number of emails from people afterwards. Um, saying that they really found the training to be important to them, that it was important that maybe they start having some other conversations that the training is going to trigger, all of that kind of stuff. And so I, I don't feel as as um, bad as I did uh, about the about the work. Now I tell I share this story with you um, because um, first of all I'm a professional. I mean we're well into over a thousand talks or trainings that I've done since 2009. Uh, but, you know, I share it also because I'm reminded that no, notwithstanding how um, positive I may feel about things and about my work, that there's always some sense of bumpiness that I'm going to, you know, encounter. Um, and that other, others... And some of you encounter, you know, every day in life, whether in your workplace or where you volunteer or whatever else it is. And we, you know, I think that we can't run away from the bumpiness. I think that we have to face into it, you know, and um, I mean, certainly engage in self-care and all of that, you know, kind of stuff. But I, I think that if, if you're going to be idealistic if you're going to go and try and make a difference in the world, you know, sometimes the world is going to kind of like speak back at you, you know, I mean, like talk back at you. And, and uh, I think the measure of grit is, do you say, okay, I'm going to still hang in. And by the way, I'm going to dust up, you know, dust off, get up and go forward, you know, the next time and just do it all over again. Um, uh, my, you know, my only regret is that, you know, this is the end of the season for me. My work is seasonal, you know, nobody wants any trainings between the middle of December and pretty much the middle of February, give or take, um, you know, and I really, I, I really want to get back up and do gray area thinking again, um, so that I, I just have it done again and, and maybe without the bumpiness, um, which would be good, you know? So, by the way, okay, if you're listening, all right, you have a nonprofit, you're part of a church, whatever, reach out to me at elliekrug.com and we, we can work something out for, like, free, okay, gratis in this time period where I'm down because I like to do work. I need to do work. Um, it's the kind of thing, it's like a muscle. You got to keep exercising it. So let me reach out to me and we'll see what we can work out in terms of timing and everything else. Okay, um, this time next week, uh, it's going to be Christmas Eve. I want to wish all of you happy holidays, a great new year. I'm going to get in the car and drive to southern Utah and go see my best friend in the world, Thap. So wish me well about that. Jack will be in the kennel for a week, but he'll be all right. He loves other dogs. I need to give a big thanks to my producer, Patrick, who's had to do like major math in this episode. So Patrick, way to go. You're always doing great with doing the math. And to you, my listeners, have great holidays and safe 
and have a wonderful start to 2023. Who knows what the year holds in store for all of us. Take care. Go out and do something nice for someone. Try and make the world better. And I'll talk to you next year. Bye-bye.